another episode of ERG Power Talk. I'm your host, Joe Santana. Those lyrics of that song, written and performed by Barbara McAfee, capture the fears and thoughts of somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 billion people who suffer from something called glossophobia. And that's just the technical term for fear of speaking. That estimate is based on expert research that tells us that about 77% of the people in the world, or about three out of four people, have some level of anxiety when it comes to speaking to a group in public. And given those stats, the chances are that you or someone that you know has actually experienced those symptoms, that fear of public speaking. You put someone with that fear in front of a group of people and it's as if their mind is suddenly in a vice and a swarm of erratic butterflies are just flying around in their stomach. And so our guest today is going to show you how to loosen that vice from your brain and get those butterflies to all line up together and fly in formation. But before we go to our guest, let's pause and revisit our mission and acknowledge our sponsors. This is ERG Power Talk, and I'm your host, Joe Santana. The purpose of ERG Power Talk is to provide a forum for the exchange of great ideas and inspiration for ERG leaders, as well as others who are interested in supporting ERGs. No more waiting until the next conference and praying that you have the budget to travel to the conference in order to find great ideas and stimulation toward action. Just subscribe and listen at your convenience. Before we begin, a quick note of thanks to our supporters and sponsors, Bear Ringer Ingelheim, CVS Health, Dollar General, Freighter Health and Wisconsin Medical College, Mass Mutual, McCormick, Johnson Controls, Pitney Bowes, Daimler Trucks North America, and Sony Pictures Entertainment. Now, let's go straight to the program. Let's meet our guest for today. He's a past president of the Georgia chapter of the National Speakers Association and a current board member. And he's also a speech writer, a speech coach, a fellow Dale Carnegie alumni, as well as a fellow Vista speaker who's worked with CEOs and business owners to improve their public communication and influencing skills. My name is Des Thornton and I'm the president of Metaphorically Speaking. Des, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here with you today. And I've already learned something, that fancy word that you had for the fear of public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> So your job is done, my friend. <laughs> I did it. Yes. I looked that up right before this. I said, there's got to be a technical term for this thing. There's a technical term for everything. But yep, glossophobia, that's it. So tell me, how is it that you became a speech writer and a speech coach? Well, I guess one thing that's I'll, I'll say right off the bat, Joe, is that I didn't grow up wanting to be a speech writer or a speech coach. And I'm not sure that many people do. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but in most 
uh, in my education and high school curriculum, there wasn't this direct path to be a speech coach or a speech writer. So interestingly, um, it sort of was a thing for me that was in the foreground. Uh, it went to the background of my life and then in adulthood, it showed up in the foreground again. And I'll color that picture in a little bit for you. So uh, early on in life, I grew up in a single parent household. Um, and for those of you who can see me, I'm African-American. And so my mother was insistent that I was going to speak well. Uh, and so she drilled that into me and every opportunity that I had to get in front of an audience or get in front of a group, uh, she insisted that I do that because she felt one, that it could be disarming uh, and, and I could also be a person of interest based on that. So for my childhood, I was, it was drilled into me all the way up until I graduated from high school. Uh, then when you get to college, of course, you get that sense of independence. And so I said, I'm going to leave all that stuff behind. I don't want to do any of that stuff, all that speaking <laughs> I've been, been forced into doing. Uh, so I did speak a little bit uh, in, in college on behalf of my university. But really, I think when I got into the lane of public speaking, uh, it goes back to something that you mentioned earlier. So when I joined the Georgia chapter of the National Speakers Association, uh, I met my people. I knew at the first meeting that I was among my people. And the, the sign was the person who opened the meeting was phenomenal. Now, I thought I was a really big deal. But just from the intro of this person, I knew that I had a long way to grow if you will. And so I stayed around that group and that's what sort of put me on the path. I ended up meeting a mentor uh, who needed assistance uh, traveling and coaching executives. And so I basically learned the business ropes uh, from him in that process. And that eventually evolved to where I have my own coaching and consulting practice. Got it. That's a wonderful story. So tell me, did you experience fear of public speaking yourself or did, did you start so early, sort of like when they throw you in the water when you're a child and you learn how to swim and you have no memory of ever being scared out of your senses the first time you were splashed in? Or did you experience that fear yourself? My first memorable public speaking experience came when I was nine years old. So as a nine-year-old kid, I'm starring in the Easter play. And I mentioned my mother early. And, and so a month before the play, she's drilling, you know, this part into me. It's like, you got to get this right. You got to get it. So before school, after school, sometimes before I could even get a meal, you know, she would make me <laughs> recite that part to make sure that I had it down. Well, finally, the big day came. It was Good Friday. And so my mom and I arrive at the church and she's all excited. I'm a little bit nervous. And so before we go in, she kind of leans over to me and says, don't embarrass me. And so I go, <laughs> so I go around the back of the church to the annex where this, my Sunday school teacher is herding all of us kids together. And um, so finally they call my name to go out on stage. And Joe, I walk out on that stage, my friend, I look over that huge crowd. There are about 20 people there. And I said, Jesus, Jesus, which were the first words in my part. And after that, nothing, nothing came out. And so I'm standing there and all of a sudden I start to feel this warm tingling sensation. It starts at, sort of at the bottom of my feet, works its way up my whole body. So by the time it gets to my chest area, I feel like I'm about to pass out. Well, right at that moment, I heard a voice and it wasn't that voice. But it was my grandmother and she said bless his heart and she starts clapping and everybody starts clapping so i thought maybe i nailed it <laughs> well when my sunday school teacher came to give me the hook it was crystal clear that i hadn't nailed it and i also had some consequences to deal with when i got home so when you asked about my start or my first experience my first was a flop a huge flop and the consequence was i had to 
not memorize that and say it every day for probably about a month afterwards. So at the age of nine, public speaking was firmly imprinted on yeah, my brain. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. So let me ask you, what are some of the things that drive that fear? I read a stat somewhere that people are more afraid of getting up in front of an audience and speaking than they are of dying. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty. That's a pretty big fear. So what drives that? Yeah. So uh, some friends of mine, we always say about that stat that most people would rather be in the box than standing over the box delivering the eulogy. So what does that say? Well, experience has taught me over a dozen or so years that fear, Joe, is actually, it's rooted in the fact that people are, are focusing on the speaking component, uh, which seems to make sense on the surface. However, I believe that they need to take a step back and focus on the thinking that precedes the speaking. Uh, because the fear that most of us have is that we won't pull up the right words or phrases or group of words at the exact time. And I think that's the thing that sort of gives us that tightrope effect and drives us insane. So with my clients, I'm always of the persuasion that it's really about public thinking as opposed to public speaking. So if I could make you think better, or if I could help you to think better and be able to recall you know, your ideas, then in effect, I can make you a, a better speaker because you're going to be more comfortable. And so the bulk of my work focuses on the thinking. And I don't even necessarily categorize myself as a speech coach for those folks who work with me. The role is more uh, that of a thought partner. Uh, so, you know, I take time to figure out uh, what's important to the people that I uh, that I work with and how their brain works a little bit. Um, the biggest thing that I found to help overcome come this, Joe, is so most of the execs that I work with, what I find is they show up for a presentation with one arm tied behind their back. Uh, and what I mean by that is if we could go back to a time that predated language, and I won't take us all the way back there and spend a ton of time there, but what we would find is our ancestors were heavily reliant on patterns and spaces uh, to help them communicate. Basically, if something was missing or if something changed in the environment, then that communicated something to those folks. So eventually with the invent of language, um, we became lazy and totally reliant on language and we abandoned the patterns and the spaces and all you know visual things that help us communicate. So what I've introduced to my clients is just the simple idea of instead of having, you know, let's say you're giving a five to 10 minute talk, instead of having words in front of you, you know, have some images that are in specific positions because nothing um, will help you recall a thought faster uh, than an image that has action. And so I believe that if you focus on the thinking and the preparation uh, that happens up front, then it will eliminate a considerable amount of the anxiety and fear that most people associate with public speaking. Yeah, so fear of public speaking is driven to some degree by fear of forgetting. And so one way of addressing that based on your advice is to use our visual memory to hold our key thoughts in mind. Still, some fear will still be there. So how do people generally cope with that fear? Yeah, Joe. Well, most people, what they tend to do is they try to act like the presentation isn't happening until maybe a couple of days or so before it. And then they're like, okay, it is. So everything that I got, I'm just going to throw it at them, throw it against the wall and hope something sticks. Um, that's usually the, the approach. Um, I found that the best way to deal with that fear uh, is to speak. It's just like anything else in life, you know, the thing that you're afraid of, whether it be a bully in elementary school or, you know, whether it be, you know, the next big job or being promoted to the next grade, whatever the case may be, it's just like you got to face that thing 
uh, head on. And so with speaking, it's the same. Now today we have a ton of advantages because of technology. So you don't even necessarily have to have an audience in front of you. You can use video and just record yourself, you know, to see how you're doing. And that sort of saves you uh, some of the embarrassment that you may feel uh, warranted or not, you know, whether you're in front of a group or in front of another person. But, you know, for me, I believe that the only way that you can allay uh, those fears is to, to, to face them head on. Yeah, yeah. Using video recording to get a lot of practice and then tighten up your delivery, that's a great idea. You know, one of the ways that I think a lot of people try to duck that sliver of fear is to write their entire manuscript on a bunch of slides. Then they stand up there in front of people and they read the slides, which means that they're not really connecting with their audience. In fact, if anything, they're blanking out on their audience. Yeah, 100%. Have you found that that's a crutch that people use a lot in the work that you do? Absolutely. And I write about that. Um, so yeah, talking about the misuse of PowerPoint. So, uh, you know, our, the best PowerPoint has an image with no words. And what I suggest to my clients is every word should have to earn its way onto a PowerPoint. Otherwise, to use your example, if you're going to just put every word on the PowerPoint screen and stand there and read it to me, why don't you just send it to me in advance and save both of us the time, you know, of having to get together. But, Joe, you kind of tap into something, uh, a larger issue there, which I believe is a lot of folks approach presentations with the goal of survival, meaning that they just want to get through it. And as long as I get through the presentation and I don't embarrass myself or cause any reputational harm, then they consider that to be a success. And as you pointed out, uh, in reality, the real you, the person doesn't have the opportunity to show up because you're so locked in and engaged and focused on the words and just getting through it as opposed to the audience. And the downside of that is usually, you know, a decision is going to be made considering if, if all the facts and, you know, everything is uh, aligned in the way that it's supposed, supposed to be, it's going to be a feeling, right? How do I feel about this person? How do I feel about Joe? Or how do I feel about Des? You know, was he confident in what he was communicating to me? You know, that's going to inform the decision just as much as the content, the material, the X's and O's that you're talking about. So, you know, I find that clients do themselves a huge disservice. Uh, service by using PowerPoint in that way. So again, Joe, going back to the to your last question, there's no way to sidestep, you know, that fear. You just got to stand there and you got to do it. And I think that uh, I, I advise clients to just focus on one thing at a time, meaning if eye contact is something that's difficult for you, then the next time you speak, just focus on eye contact. You know, don't worry about, you know, all the other things. Just try to be good, you know, at that one thing while you're up there at that time. Yeah, so don't overwhelm yourself by trying to master too many skills at one time. That's great advice. So Des, in your experience, have you found that there are just some people that do not have it in them to be good public speakers? Or is public speaking essentially a skill that anyone can learn? So I'm in the camp that uh, anyone can get better at it and you don't have to be a born or a natural uh, when it comes to presenting. I sort of divide it for my clients in a way that they could digest it. So one half is the science, which is the mechanics and things that you can practice and improve your skill, which will make you better. And then the other side of it is the art. It's like when you're in the moment, how comfortable are you? Or, you know, if you have a, a serendipitous moment where you could say something that may be funny, you know, do you have the ability to pull that off? You know, I think all of those things are sort of on the art side 
of public speaking, but the skill, in fact, is something that folks can learn. And so I often use the example of dancing. So when it comes to dancing, of course, we could put the footsteps on the floor and we could say, okay, you step here one, you step here two. And most people, if they have the physical ability, they can follow that and do that. But would we qualify that as dancing? If I were doing it, certainly you wouldn't qualify it as dancing. But <laughs> You can take that same individual with those same steps and let's take someone who's a trained or a professional dancer. I mean, they could go through those same steps effortlessly and we won't even be able to see the steps. And that's the art side of it. So similarly with public speaking, I just believe that you should enhance those skills uh, to the extent possible. And I often also believe that, you know, you never arrive to where you're perfect. I still work on my skills all the time after all of these years. But what's interesting is the better you get at those skills, uh, they tend to become second nature. And you don't think about where should I place my hand or where should I place my feet? Those things become natural. And surprisingly, the art shows up, the person shows up. So um, I, I was taught early on when I got into the speaking business that I was gonna go in a complete circle. And I had no idea what that meant but you know uh, the, the folks who were mentors and coaches to me at that time said you're going to go in a complete circle and when you come back you'll be yourself and it's going to take a while and it's going to be frustrating and so in that process what i did was i watched different professional speakers who i admired and i would just take a technique or a characteristic that they had and i was like hmm, i really like that i want to incorporate that into what i'm doing so not necessarily to mimic them but to take what they were doing and to use it in my own way and so over time you know i sort of have all these pieces of different people who i've watched present fused with you know some of my natural ability and that's what ultimately uh, makes us unique as an individual going back to this idea of going in a 360 circle i think at some point you get back to where you realize hey i i kind of got this thing down a little bit and one of the things that i find myself doing quite often is having to give my clients permission to be themselves in front of an audience because for some reason in a business environment there's this um Oh, this idea or thought, you know, that you have to be a professor and you have to be buttoned up and you have to be, you know, and, and that stuff is good and it has its place, but we're all human beings, right? And so what people are really looking for is who's the person behind the mask? Uh, and is that somebody that I can engage with? Is that someone that I would want to work with? And going back to what we said earlier, of course, the, the key or the way to do that is the practice and the preparation that happens in advance. That's great advice. I think there were a number of little gems in there. One was that whole 360, which I think applies to just about everything that we learn, where we begin by adopting qualities from others that may not be natural to us. Yes. Following the rules carefully. It's almost, again, to go back to your analogy, when you're learning a new dance step, and I used to be a ballroom dancer, so oh. I, I, so that connects back to me. I wish so, I would have known that, Joe. We'll have you cutting the rug for us today. <laughs> That's right. Not today. Not today. But when we're, when we're learning a new skill, we tend to uh, follow the rules very carefully. So yes, we count steps, and anybody casually watching can clearly see that we're counting steps and we copy moves we see other people using that we think really look good. After a while, you actually don't need to count steps and the moves that you copied come naturally to you. And that's when you begin to add your own accents and gestures to the dance. And I think that circle from following the rules of the game incorporating from others things that we like and then bringing in more of your true original self is probably true of 
everything, of every skill that we learn. So I think that's a great piece of advice to keep in the back of our minds for public speaking and also for other important skills. So speaking of other skills, there are a lot of different skills that people need to learn to be effective in business. Where would you rank public speaking for somebody who really wants their career to take off? Oh, I would put this at number one. And of course, I'm, I'm biased, um, but everything comes back to communication. Uh, at some point, you know, someone is going to have to stand up and hold the flag and say, you know, this is who we are and this is what we represent. This is what we stand for. Uh, and, you know, no matter the industry, I've worked with folks in wide, wide industries from uh, mechanical engineers at pump companies to emergency room surgeons to attorneys to professional athletes. And it all comes back to communication. I mean, it's the language between us. If anything is going to move forward, if anything is going to change, you know, we have to have a conversation about that or there has to be a presentation made about it so that we can all get into the flow and also share these same ideas. So one of the things that I've noticed just over my years and working with mid-level folks um, for those people who have aspirations of going to the C-suite or higher up in management, usually those people who get the nod uh, are people who have adequate skill level. Of course, you, you have to have the chops um, in order to take that leap you know, up to the next step. But it's usually those who can communicate, who can rally folks, who can get trust and influence, uh, which I believe is the reason that we all communicate is to gain the trust of others so that we can ultimately influence them to an end that we predetermine. Uh, and folks who tend to show acumen uh, in that area, particularly when it comes to public speaking, they're the ones who seem to get the nod uh, to move forward or to move ahead. And as I said, a lot of times they may not be as technically as skilled, you know, as their counterpart or as their colleague, but just because they have that ability to engender trust from other individuals, most of the time folks in leadership see that as a skill um, that certainly propels them ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Say one of our listeners is a leader of an employee community and they just want to get better at this. They want to increase their ability to deliver with confidence and, and to be influential and not to have to deal with the restless night the day before any presentation when they're getting up in front of a group. What are some concrete steps that you recommend that they take that will immediately take them from maybe not from zero to 10, but at least will get them above that five, six line in terms of their skill set in delivering a good, solid, presentation? So a couple of um, quick things that I'll say right off. And, and first of all, I should say that anything that you do for the first time or anything that you knew and that you're starting out, you're going to be a bit clumsy. Uh, so you just got to accept that uh, as it is. And, and for those folks who are working today and maybe, you know, in an employee group, I would challenge you to think back to your first day on the job and the feelings that you had on the first day on, the, on your job. You know, it felt like, man, I don't know what to do here. I don't fit in. I'm clumsy uh, in this environment. And then you fast forward and look at where you are today. And it's like you do a lot of things basically second nature uh, and you don't even think about them. So public speaking is the same. So first I would say, just accept the fact that if you want to get better, you're going to be clumsy. It happens to everyone. Doesn't last forever. Um, secondly, I would suggest maybe uh, five different things. So when I approach a presentation, the first thing that I recommend for my clients is, and you'll see a pattern here, is to sniff it out. And by sniff it out, I mean, just get clear on the purpose of why it is you're speaking or why it is you're communicating. And I believe that there's two parts to sort of sniffing things out. 
So one is to get to know your audience intimately. And I use the terminology, you wanna get under their skin so that you can see through their eyes. And by get under their skin, I mean, what biases do they have and what behaviors do they have as a result of that bias? You know, how are they acting? Uh, and then compare that to how you want them to act. What that does is sort of creates this natural gap of these people believe this today and they're behaving this way. And I want them to believe this and behave this way. And so now in the middle of those two end markers of what they currently believe and what you want them to believe and how you want them to behave, the, the presentation itself, the persuasion happens in the middle of that. So I think it's first important to understand intimately the people that you're speaking to. Um, secondly, is to ask and answer the questions. What do I want my audience to know? What do I want them to feel? What do I want them to believe? And ultimately, what do I want them to do? Okay, so of all of those different, uh, of those four things, I'll point out two in particular. So what do I want them to feel? That's something that gets left out in business and my clients push back on it all the time. And Joe, we can revisit that if you like. And then the fourth one is what do I want them to do? What action do I want them to take? So if you're clear about that in the beginning, uh, going back to Dr. Stephen Covey and beginning with the end in mind, it makes it much easier for you to sort of reverse engineer back to the beginning and build a case for you want your audience to ultimately end up. So I know that was a lot of information, but that's number one. That's sniffing it out to figure out what am I really talking about here? All right, secondly is to point it out. So by point it out, I mean just that bullet points. So just bullet point out all of the ideas uh, that you have and just get them out on paper. The mistake that most people make at this step is they edit themselves. So they'll have an idea and then they'll edit that idea. They'll put it on the rotisserie and go around and around with that idea. An hour later, after spending time preparing, you got one idea that you divided into 10,000 different ways. And there's not a lot you can do with it. So the advice at this step of pointing everything out is just get it out. Don't edit it. Third is to sort it out. So now that you have all these different pieces, how do you sort, make associations, cluster, clump, you know, these different ideas together? So you sort all of those things out. Then there's the map, which is number four. So you map it out. So going from beginning to end, what, what should be first, what should be second, what should be third to build this case to how you want your audience to eventually be, uh, believe and behave. And then of course, lastly is to spit it out. And by spit it out, I mean just that, to deliver it. Uh, whether you're practicing or whether you're actually in front of the audience delivering it, you just gotta get it out of you. So just to recap those five for you, one is to sniff it out with two components, A being knowing your audience and B being answering the questions, what do I want my audience to know, feel, believe, and do? Two is to point it out, get out all the ideas, don't edit the ideas, sort it out. So you've created a jigsaw puzzle. Now you need to sort all those pieces out and make associations of things that are alike. Mapping out is just the sequence that you wanna go from beginning to end. And then lastly, is just to spit it out, just deliver, see what you have, and you can begin to improve things from there. So Joe, I, I know that's a long-winded answer to your question, but I go back to this idea that you talked about earlier, which is one is just planning, right? Just, just plan and have a process that's repeatable. The thing uh, that I find with my clients who are mainly uh, high-level executives, they don't have the luxury of time. Uh, and on the opposite side of that, when they're speaking to a group 
either within their company or outside of their organization, if they're you know standing there as the ambassador, typically what they're saying is really, really important. So when you put those two variables together, you know, not having a lot of time, but when you are on stage or in front of a group is critically important. That signaled to me early on in my career that I needed a repeatable process, something that people could look at and use so they don't have to reinvent the wheel every time that they communicate. And so having a process like that to me helps the individual uh, get better because they're familiar with the routine, number one. Uh, and, and again, it's just that repeatable process. Yeah, it captures a lot in that one five-step model there. So I yeah. like that. I'm glad you repeated it because it's something really important for people to take away from this. So let's pause here and take stock of what we've learned so far from talking to Des. One, an important factor in improving our public speaking is improving our public thinking. The ability to think on your feet is really critical. And the next step is going to offer you some important practical ways that you can do this, which are to learn to focus on mental pictures. Focus on what you want to convey instead of focusing on the word choices and the sentence structures. Words are a newly devised construct for communication, and the mind's most powerful and natural language is still pictures. So to help you be a better public thinker, try to capture your ideas and notes and pictures that are meaningful to you. Three, become a better speaker by practicing speaking. With all the video equipment at our disposal today, you don't need to have an audience. You can just record yourself on your phone's camera and use that to practice. We actually have more on how you can use your phone's camera in the second half of this interview, so stay tuned for that. Four, Use this five-step approach to pull together your presentation material. Here are the steps. Step one, sniff it out. Find out as much as you can about your audience. You want to be able to see the world through your audience's eyes. And you also want to know what they think, what they feel, and what they're doing right now with the information they have so that you can then establish the gap between that and what you want them to think to feel, to do, and perceive after they listen to your presentation. Step two, point it out. Bullet out all your ideas. And at this point, don't try to edit anything. Just get your ideas out of your head and onto paper. Step three, sort it out. You want to be able to cluster your ideas, combine them, and break them down in different ways to see how these different ideas combine, connect, and are different from each other. Step four, map it out. And here what you want to do is find the natural order in which you can best present these ideas in order to achieve your goal. And finally, step five, spit it out. You want to practice your presentation until it is perfectly tuned. Now, that last step may leave some of you thinking, where am I going to find the time to practice before I deliver a presentation? I'm so busy with my full-time day job on top of all these other responsibilities I took on as an ERG leader. How can a busy ERG leader with a full-time job find the time to rehearse as much as needed in order to deliver a really great presentation? Well, we're going to talk about that and more in the second segment of this interview. But before we do that, let's take a moment to learn a little more about our guest, Des Thornton. I'll see you on the other side. 
Many people would rather take a beating than get up and speak in front of a group. But with a speaking coach like Des, before you know it, you've chiseled out a tight outline, told a great story, had a few belly laughs, and realized you've got the audience eating out of the palm of your hand. Professionally trained at the University of South Carolina and Dale Carnegie, he is a past president of the Georgia chapter of the National Speakers Association and a winner of Speak Tank, a speaking competition hosted by the National Speakers Association. Des has been a speech coach for business executives, professional athletes, and the TEDx franchise. Dedicated to teaching the art and science of public speaking, Des believes it's not what you say that matters, but what your audience hears. You can learn more about Des's work at DesThornton.com. That's D-E-Z-T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N.com. DesThornton.com. And we're back. Let's get back to Des. One of the things that you mentioned is carving out the time to prepare for public speaking when you are time constrained. And I think that's really important to our listeners because besides their ERG responsibilities, they all have big demands from their full-time day jobs. So I believe carving out time to rehearse is something that they probably struggle with. So how do they actually find time to rehearse to get ready? And so I want to ask you about that next. But first, I want to share with you my own personal technique and see what you think about it. Okay. So one of the things that I learned a long time ago, because I was pressed for time and I needed to have a lot of presentations ready, sometimes for executive committee groups and so forth. And I just didn't have the luxury of segmenting out maybe a half hour, an hour to get up in front of a mirror and practice. and. And I really didn't see the value of doing that in front of a mirror that much. But what I found was that once I had that presentation ready, what helped me was that I would weave in what I was going to talk about whenever I was talking to other people. And so... You stole my thunder, Joe. That's it. So, <laughs> That's exactly what I was I was rehearsing all the time. I mean, it got to the point where my wife, who has a really good ear and is pretty keen on these things, would be listening and she'd say you're rehearsing, aren't you, right, right. now? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about this topic in such a way with such depth that this is not just a casual conversation. Right. But anybody that I could latch on to when I was having a conversation that I could find a way to weave that topic in, maybe the another day I was in the meeting and I raised my hand to answer a question. As I was answering a question, I would weave in like a component of the topic I was going to talk about. And what I found was that by doing that, it internalized the topic to the degree that it just became part of the way I explained the particular topic. So I think you're by your nodding and what you're saying, you vigorously agree with that. Yeah. Are there any other variations of that or any other ideas? Because I think that's a big part, especially for people that are really busy, who don't have the time to you know, segment out a piece of their day to just rehearse, to find different clever ways to be able to rehearse while they're doing other things. Okay, hundred percent. So that was my that was my eight option that I was going to share. So what I'll add to that, uh, Joe, is just don't get caught in the way that you did with your wife uh, when you're practicing on people. So the tip is you can do that. I think it's great. Uh, conversation 
is a great way to practice presentation, particularly um, humor. You know, if you're thinking about a joke or something that you want to add into a presentation, you know, try it on someone in conversation and see if you get a laugh or get a chuckle because that's a good indicator of how the group is actually going to react and respond to what you're saying. So practicing conversation one, I would say is excellent. That'd be my, my first choice. The other thing that I've had um, executives do who are pressed for time is to, once they get to the point where they've gone through their version of those five steps and you get to the point where you have, you know, either a solid outline or if you have a full out script, what I would recommend you do is read the script and audio record yourself reading through the script. And what I advise my clients to do who are busy, most of them work out or drive. I have them play that back on audio. And what it does is it has the same impact that a song would have. We've all, you know, been found ourselves kind of singing a jingle from a commercial or some, you know, the chorus of some tune. And we're thinking like, when did I even, when did that get stuck in my head? Like I put no effort into internalizing that, but apparently it's there because I know every word of it. Well, that, you know, whatever that gift, that magic is, uh, it also helps with presentations. And so if you were to listen to your script, you know, while you're working out or while you're on a drive or whatever the case may be, you will be amazed at how much of that information will be inside of you uh, as a result of that. So to answer that question, Joe, one is conversation for practice, because of course you get the live feedback and you can sort of assess how people react to different things, whether it's humor or if it's, you know, hardcore content for lack of a better word. But then secondly is to record yourself and just listen to it in a way that you would a song and something magic definitely happens there. One of my clients swears that you got to be walking when you're listening to it. So what he does is when he's on the treadmill, you know, he gets to that point. Uh, he has a script. He does the audio recording. And when he's on the treadmill in the morning, he said something about walking uh, and, and that listening is what gets it in his brain. So if it works, it works. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I agree with that, Des, because it works for me. When I'm listening to other podcasts or a lot of times if I am working on a piece of material, I usually do it while I'm running, whether mm -hmm. it's on a treadmill or on a trail. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's the circulation or if it's a bunch of different things, but I find that my thinking is a lot clearer and I remember more and I'm much sharper at noticing little yeah. distinctions. In fact, I try to write those down because yeah. as, my, <laughs> as my pulse rate returns to normal, my clarity <laughs> starts to fade. But uh but that's a, that's that's actually a technique that I've used that I think works pretty well. You know, in the beginning of our discussion, you mentioned something about instead of focusing on words, focusing on images. And I know that you do some work in that area. Can you just touch on that? Because that's a topic I think we're going to be talking a lot about in more detail later on when we have the discussion with the uh, groups that are part of the learning session that we're going to have together. But for now, can you give us a high level view of how to use imagery as a way of holding on to information and remembering the sequence of information and what you're going to talk about and how you can really burn that imagery into your mind so that when the moment comes and the lights are on and the mm -hmm. curtain draws open, you're ready to go. Yes. So, uh, so Joe, the, I, I think the main point here is, uh, first of all, going back to this idea that you mentioned where the fear 
that most people have is rooted in the fact that they think that they're going to forget what they're going to say, you know, in front of their peers or in front of an important audience. And then there's that opportunity for reputational harm or embarrassment. And so what we're talking about here in terms of just using visuals to, to help you, how do visuals help to alleviate you know, that, that problem with forgetfulness, well, it would make sense that you need to have an image of something that's familiar to you. So one option for this, and I'll share with you three different ones here, Joe. So one option that I believe is very, very effective is to think about your home or to think about your office and to think about different places or positions in your office and just placing your ideas there. So example for me would be in the den, the family room of my home, there's a sofa, there's a love seat, there's a recliner, there's a big window, and there's also a fireplace. And so what I do is I start at that cushion on the sofa, and I may, I may have three bullet points in my mind on that cushion, right? Of, and it may be the opening of my presentation. And then the next is on that second cushion. The next is on the third cushion. And then there's a big, huge picture window beside the sofa. So I put some ideas there as well. So when I'm trying to remember these bullet points or these different ideas that I'm, you know, that I'm going to present, I'm able to pull them up quickly because I know exactly where they are. They're on the cushion of my sofa or they're on the picture window in my living room or they're in the fireplace in my living room. And so I could just see them there. And so what that does is it allows my mind to go to that position uh, and that's the thing that we that fails us is right going to that position where the word is. So if you can get there, then half the battle is already done uh, because either you have bullet points or you have a picture of something in your mind that's going to trigger that thought for you. So you can do that in one room of your house and then eventually go through your entire house. So I have to have several speeches hanging around my house <laughs> in my head. Um, secondly, is you can create something that um, I use primarily with clients, which is a three by three box. So just imagine if you had three horizontal boxes and three vertical boxes. And so if you had images in each one of those boxes, or either if you had bullet points in each one of those boxes, then you would know to move from, you know, horizontally, vertically, whatever you choose, but you would know the direction that you would move and where those ideas are placed. Same concept. You know where the idea is, you can go directly to it. Now, to add on to this idea of this three by three box, and one example of where this has worked really, really well is I've had several clients who are great at one-on-one. -on -one. So um, they come into a room and shake hands and kiss babies and are charismatic and everybody loves them. But take those same people, put them on a stage in front of a boardroom environment, 10 people or either a large group. And it's just like, oh my God, what happened to them? They're totally transformed. And it's something about being in front of the room and that group dynamic that just transforms them and makes them a totally different person. And I'm thinking of one client here in Atlanta who was a CEO of a 120 person company. It's a $20 million company. Uh, he fits the profile of this perfectly. I mean, if you met him one-on-one, -on -one, he probably could sell you anything. But put him on a stage and you'd be like, what does this guy do in the company? Uh, so what we ended up doing is after struggling with him back and forth, he was doing what he calls his all-hands meeting, which was a meeting at the end of the year where they sort of look at what they've accomplished you know, for the prior year and then look forward to the next year as far as goals and things, awards are given out. And so the challenge was, you know, how can we make him really, really show up in the way that he does in, in a one on one environment? So what we did was we took his entire presentation and we just drew pictures and we used the three by three boxes. And so we ended up with about 12 sheets of three by three boxes. 
And so what he was able to do is he was able to look down if necessary. So instead of him having pages full of notes on a lectern in front of him, what he actually had was pages full of pictures that were in three by three boxes. And there were some words incorporated there. So there weren't all pictures. It was a combination of the two. And this kind of takes us back to where we started in terms of incorporating the, the, the pattern spaces, the words and all those things together. It was the best presentation by far that he had given. And he showed up as himself, he was natural. And the reason being is number one, he knew the placement of his ideas, but secondly, he wasn't arrested by the words. So going back to that tightrope feeling where you've memorized everything, and then if someone sneezes during the presentation, it's like you totally lose your thought and you lose every, you know, you lose everything. What he was able to do is look down, grab an image, and then he was able to just talk to that image freely. And he wasn't worried about how it was gonna butt up against the next thing he was going to say, as it would in a written format where everything has to flow, he would just look at the next picture and then naturally he would know what to say. And again, he's gifted in that area of, of conversation, but it just wasn't allowed to come out because of the words uh, that were there. So again, three by three, box or box of your choosing just something where you can segment and know how you're going to move about it is something that will help you dramatically and then secondly would be just using positions that you're familiar with whether it's your office home car uh place those ideas there in your mind and move around them uh in a way that you're familiar with and it will alleviate surprisingly it alleviates a ton of the fear and anxiety that we talked about early on wow great ideas great powerful yeah. ideas <laughs> And so let me ask you this in terms of the way most people are communicating today, which is over media like this in virtual conferences. Are there any special tips in preparing to effectively connect with an audience when you're delivering over this media? Because I think it presents opportunities for you to, right, to use technology to enhance what you're doing and your presentation and so forth. But it also presents certain challenges because you're not in the same room with people. Yes. So what are some of the things that you add as advice for people who are using this type of media as their vehicle for communication? So I'll, I'll divide them up into two areas, Joe. So one would be mindset. Um, I think when it comes to the mindset of doing a virtual presentation, the first thing that you need to think is um, adaptation. You need to be thinking about time because as human beings, our attention span, it seems like every year is getting shorter and shorter. Um, and the attention span of an audience for an in-person speaker compared to one who is via Zoom or remote uh, in some way is going to be much shorter. And that's something that you need to think about and also prepare for. So for example, if you're doing a full day training in person for eight hours, then you could probably pull that off. But if you're asking folks to stay on a Zoom and stare at a computer for eight hours consecutively, that's gonna be a pretty heavy lift. So one of the things that I do is I recommend to clients that they try to keep their sessions to 30, 45, or either 50 minute increments with the break that immediately follows that. So I do quite a bit of Vistage presentations to CEO groups, as you mentioned. And so one of the things I do early in those presentations is first of all, I say that um, it's hard enough for us to sit down and watch a Hollywood movie uh, that has millions of dollars invested in it and then things blow up and spin around and do all these kind of things. And that doesn't hold our attention. So this guy 
sitting here, you know, I, I understand the tasks that I have before me. So number one, I enlist them in that way. And then I also let them know that we're going to take breaks and things like that. So just letting your audience know that you're conscious of the difficulty they may have in the situation, I think is uh, one thing that's really, really important. Um, the second thing I would say is from a, from a mental standpoint, don't obsess over what can go wrong. Uh, because the same things can go wrong when you're in person, right? So your PowerPoint could go haywire and not work and all those types of things. So what you need to focus on is what is going to be my contingency plan if all of a sudden my audience can't hear me, or all of a sudden my audience can't see me, or I lose people, you know? So just think about those things that could happen, prepare for them, go forward. Um, from a practical standpoint, I would say that um, the biggest thing practically that I've shared with clients is there's the saying that, you know, 80% of communication is nonverbal. Don't know how true that is exactly, but let's give it some credence. If a large percentage of what we communicate is nonverbal and 80% of your body is missing <laughs> because you're uh, in front of a video screen, that means that you have to compensate for it in some way. Right. And so the question becomes, how do I compensate um, for my body language based on what I have in front of me with this, uh, this Zoom platform or this remote platform? So for me, there's really three things. So one is eye contact. Um, so making sure that you're looking your audience directly in the eyes. So the thing that I found with uh, clients who were just really getting into this this year as a result of the pandemic, what they were doing is they were looking at the person that they were talking to on screen as if they were looking them directly in their eyes. And so what happens when you do that is the closer you are to the to your laptop or your desktop, the more it looks like you're looking down slightly. So you want to make sure you're looking directly at the light or the lens uh, in front of you and not the person that you're speaking to. So as uh, practice for me, if I'm talking, then I don't see the people that I'm talking to because I'm staring directly uh, into the computer lens. On the, um, on the flip side you know, of that equation, Joe, um, just bringing your voice to the party. So one of the things that people struggle with a lot is their voice. So highs, lows, variations in your voice helps um, thirdly, I would say is facial expressions. So the smiles, um, the things of that nature help a ton. And then the last thing I would suggest to you is, is leaning in. Uh, so when you're, when you're leaning back away uh, from your camera, then that sort of puts you in a position of authority, if you will. But when you lean in, it puts you in a position of connectivity. So if you think about that leaning back and then also that leaning in, then your audience will feel uh, that transition. They will feel that change. They will feel like you're closer to them and they will feel more connected uh, just because you're right there with them. So just to recap that, Joe, think adaptation. You know, this is a new or a different medium for a lot of us. We, we have to make some changes that compensate for the fact that our attention spans are dramatically shorter than they've been in the past. And then from a technical standpoint, a practical standpoint, the eye contact, making sure you're directly into that camera lens, making sure that you're leaning in when you're speaking to the audience, facial gestures and things of that nature, and then also using your voice. The, the worst thing that you could do is be monotone uh, in a situation like this, because that's hard enough to follow in person. But if you're monotone on a computer, you're going to take yourself out of the game early. early yeah, absolutely. Great advice. So let me ask you this, Dez. For people who are listening to this, who are thinking, you know what, I want to improve in this area. I'm going to apply some of these ideas. What are some of the ways that people can get that practice? Okay, so I'll give you some, um, some things that they can do to help with their skill. And then other things I'll share with you, uh, just a few organizations 
um, that could potentially be helpful. So from a uh, from a, a skill standpoint, so I created a model that's based off of a baseball diamond that allows you to basically create an outline for any conversation or presentation uh, that you may have. I'll share this with Joe if I haven't already, and then he can share it uh, as he chooses with his listeners or, or those who request it. But again, it goes back to this idea of being able to visually see your ideas and, and where they are. So come, if use my method, uh, adapt my method, or create your own method, but have some type of method that or process that you go through every single time that you present. So the routine of that, just like the routine of anything else, will help you um, and you'll find comfort in the routine because you're doing the same thing over and over. So it takes away some of the guesswork and which contributes to the anxiety um, of presenting. Um, secondly, I mentioned this earlier is video. So take advantage of your phone and just prop your phone up someplace and video record yourself presenting. If it's a formal presentation that you have to give or you know you have specific topics, then you know get in front of the camera and um, allow yourself to you know, so sort of all let it hang out and then um, be honest with yourself about feedback. Ask your spouse, partner, significant other, friends, colleagues for uh, some advice in that area. Uh, really quickly, Joe, so four quick ways that you want to watch your video. So one is to watch it in normal fashion, put it in, pre press play. Um, and here is just to see, you know, do I or do I not like this person? So there's a likability factor uh, all the time. So that's what you want to look for first off. Uh, secondly is to listen to the video, but mute the sound. Okay. So when the sound is muted, what that does is it has the same effect. If your television is on and the sound is off and you see this person who's on screen and they're gesturing and they're smiling and leaning in their arms are flailing everywhere. The thing that we as human beings, we want to know, like, what is this person saying? Um, so when you're looking at yourself in that way without the sound, the question would be, do your gestures, do your body language intrigue someone else to the point where they wish they knew what you were saying? So that's number two, which is to listen to it without sound. Number three is just the opposite of that. So turn the you know laptop away from you or, or just get to a position where you could only hear your voice. Uh, and similar to the way if you've been in another room and the TV is on and someone has a great voice and they're talking about something, you know, as, as human beings, naturally, we want to say we want to put a face with that voice. Right. So is your voice doing the job in that way? Uh, and then lastly, and my favorite is fast forward. So when you watch your video on fast forward, what that does is it exaggerates all of your movements. So if you're a person who paces back and forth, then it'll have you going you know, across the room very quickly. Or if you're a person who primarily gestures with one hand, then it'll have that one hand gesturing and it'll be clear to you that you can invite that other hand to the party. Um, so that's a great way to watch video if you choose to do that as a strategy. So one is normal, put it in, press play. Two is to watch the video without sound to see if your body language gestures um, invoke you to, to pull that sound in. Thirdly is listen to the audio, only just intonations in your voice. Uh, and then lastly is to fast forward for gestures. So uh, to answer that question, Joe, so one was the diamond model to help folks. Two is video. Three would be impromptu topics. So all you have to do is just make some impromptu topics, you know, put them on a little strip of paper, put them in a hat or put them on a table or something like that. And just pick them up and look at it, look at the camera and then just start talking um, about that particular topic. Now, once you created your process of outlining and things like that, that's where you kind of want to put that to work for you. But what that will do is it will help you formulate your thoughts and it'll also reveal to you some of that process. Again, you'll find comfort and all of those things. So those are some of the technical things that you can do to move the needle 
um, as far as this concern. As far as affiliation with groups and things like that, I'll recommend three groups. So first would be Toastmasters, which I'm sure most people have heard of before. Uh, Toastmasters helps you with your skill. So Joe and I were talking earlier about improving your skill, actually standing up in front of a group and saying your name and then talking about a topic. So you can improve your platform skills at Toastmasters. The other option that you have available to you is to join the National Speakers Association. The National Speakers Association is different from Toastmasters in the sense that it focuses on the business of speaking. So it teaches individuals like myself who are big idea people who have content, who are coaches, consultants, trainers. It teaches us the business behind what we're doing. So if your aim is to eventually make revenue um, from your ideas or to make revenue from communication, then the Speakers Association would be a great place for you to land. Uh, and then the last one is um, ASTD, and um, they've changed their names a couple of times, so I'm not sure if that's the latest version of their uh, name, but it's the uh, Association of Trainers uh, and Developers. Uh, so again, big idea people who typically present um, to groups. So Joe, just like anything else in the world where, you know, there's a, there's a porta potty, you know, association, you know, there are all types of associations that I've learned uh, over the years. The same exists for speakers. And so the three that I mentioned to you are probably three of the tops that I would recommend. That's great. Boy, you've packed a lot in a little bit less than an hour here, <laughs> and I really appreciate it. I'm sure that there are going to be people that are going to be interested in reaching out to you. So how do they find you? So uh, either on LinkedIn or my website, and both are the same. So my website is desthornton.com, and my LinkedIn is also desthornton. So it's D-E-Z. And it's T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N. So if you put my name in Google or any place like that, I'll typically pop up and my phone number is everywhere. So I'd be more than happy to help anyone uh, who's interested in improving their communication skills. As I get older, Joe, and start to get a little bit of gray hair going here, I figured out that that's the reason why I was put on this rock uh, is to help people communicate better. So I'm always open to helping those who are uh, interested in improving their skill. That's fantastic. Well, I have to tell you, you've been a fantastic guest, Des, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show today. Well, it was my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. I know that you provide huge value uh, to the community that you support. And so to think that I could be a voice uh, to help you move that needle forward, Joe, is in fact an honor and a great way to start off my 2021. <laughs> fantastic. Thanks again, Des. Okay, so let's sum up what we got out of our second segment of the interview with Des. One, you can save time by weaving your rehearsals into other activities like driving, running, walking, and so forth. You can even practice on unsuspecting friends, families, and colleagues. Two, record yourself on video and then run these recordings four different ways. One, at regular speed, so you can get an overall feel for how you're coming across. Two, at fast speed, so that you can exaggerate your gestures and zoom in on them more sharply. Three, without sound, so that you can see if the look you're projecting is appealing. And finally, four, with sound, but without looking at the video, so that you can determine if your voice is working the way you want it to. 
Three, use your brain's imagery capabilities and spatial memory to remember key ideas. You can place your bullets or the pictures of objects that you're thinking about that you want to bring up in your speech in familiar places around, say, a room in your house, somewhere you're familiar with. And then when you need to recover that idea, picture yourself in that room and look for the objects or bullets where you put them in your imagination. You'll be amazed at how powerful this tool is. Four, you can also print out your notes using a lot of pictures so that when you see them, they help you recall ideas. Five, pick different topics and practice structuring them into presentations using the five-step process that we discussed in the first half of this interview. Six, when presenting in a video conference, look at the camera. That's how you make eye contact and use a lot more facial gestures and voice modulation. You need to make up for the absence of physical cues from that 80% of yourself that's hidden from your audience. So make more use of those areas that your audience can see and hear. And finally, seven, if you want to continue building on these skills, join one of the many speaker organizations that are out there. There is an inscription on an ancient Egyptian tomb that's over 3,000 years old, and it reads like this, make thyself a craftsman of speech, for thereby thou shalt gain the upper hand. A more recent report from Harvard Business School found that the number one attribute that will lead you to the top of any profession is the ability to speak passionately, persuasively, and professionally, especially in public. So it's clear that public speaking, which was recognized as a critical success factor thousands of years ago, is still important today. So I invite you to let this episode be your first step towards mastering the craft that will make you a powerful and successful public speaker. Thank you for tuning in to ERG Power Talk. If you enjoyed and got value out of this program, please like us and leave a favorable review at your podcast provider's site. Also, invite others to listen to the show. By the way, Contact me if you're looking for an ERG symposium keynote or a leader for your strategy workshop, new chair onboarding, and or ERG bootcamp. I can run these for you either in person or in a virtual setting. Also, for more great ideas and tips for your ERGs, get my book, Supercharge Your ERGs, 18 Tips to Power Up Your ERG Strategy on Amazon.com. I'm Joe Santana. And thanks again for tuning in.